The American Battlefield Trust seeks to preserve our nation's hallowed battlegrounds and educate the public about what happened there and why it matters today. They permanently protect these battlefields for future generations as a lasting and tangible memorial to the brave soldiers who fought in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, and the Civil War. For more information on how you can help their efforts, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information, please log on to www.shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester. What's up, everybody? Hey, it's John, the Tattooed Historian, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. You know, we've been growing steadily here. I've seen the numbers are going up as far as downloads, and I thank you so much for that. I'm so happy that we are getting more history out to the masses, that you are subscribing to the podcast, that you're sharing the podcast, and that you're enjoying the podcast. Whether you listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes or any other uh, podcast venue, Whether you listen to it in your car or at work uh, or at home, it doesn't matter. It's still very important to me that that you enjoy the show and that you get something out of it. And from each week, I try to give you something new and fresh and different. Now, last week, I spoke with Ashley Abruzzo involving uh, 18th century German immigrants to Virginia. This week, we're staying in Virginia, and we're staying in the 18th century. And this week I'm speaking to Stephanie Seal Walters, who is a lovely friend of mine. We've been friends for a couple of years, and she's been a supporter of my Tattoo Historian project for a number of years before it ever became uh, its own business. And Stephanie is a very interesting person because she loves loyalists during the Revolution. And I figured what better topic to talk about than the loyalists during the Revolution. You know, some of us grew up watching some of the documentary miniseries on the Revolution. I know that right now in popular culture, Turn was a very big uh, show for a number of seasons. Maybe some of you were introduced to that period through something like that. I was really introduced to this period by John Adams and the HBO miniseries. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of similarity between my introduction to this era and Stephanie's introduction to this era. So it's a really great conversation we had in her apartment, and uh, we were joined by her nine-year-old pug. And you may hear him from time to time because he was at my feet in a dog bed, and I caught him snoring from time to time, and I didn't know if it would be through the recording or not. So you may hear a little bit of snoring going on. That's not me because I don't find this boring. That's her pug. I won't try to... Uh, say his name because it is a very long name and Stephanie does a good job introducing him at the beginning so you will get to hear that uh, 
royal name, basically, that he has. He has a very regal name. And it was a great time. We really enjoyed it. And I've really learned some things from her. And it really made me interested in thinking about the loyalists a little more, their personal experiences, what it was like on the home front for loyalist families. It all was very encompassing and a very good talk. And we just kept rolling and rolling. And uh, it was getting pretty late. And I said, well, we better wrap this up. So once her and I get together, we, we tend to roll. Some of you may remember her from back last summer. We did a Facebook Live event from a pub a brewery in uh, Leesburg. And it went on and on for over an hour, just us going back and forth with our friend Travis Shaw. And my wife was there as well. And we were just talking about 18th century stuff the entire time. And it, it really uh, was an awesome time. So this is kind of an extension of that discussion. So without further ado, uh, my friends, this is my great friend, the awesome Stephanie Seal Walters. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in. I am here with my friend Stephanie Seal Walters. Uh, I already gave you a pretty cool intro about her. And uh, who's the little guy here that we're with? Okay, so if you hear like some snorting and right now um, some scratching in the background because he's in his bed, we have my nine-year-old pug whose name is Sir Lord General Bunker Hill Washington Seal Adams um, Esquire the Third. That, so, that is the most amazing dog name It ever. is, and I have people all the time, they're like, you do know there's no such thing as a Sir Lord General, and I'm like, yeah, well, you can't be one. <laughs> he can't. Right, there is. Yeah, he's right here. He's right here. Well, obviously, you're wrong, so. Yes. Yeah, and when I um graduate, I say his name is going to be Dr. Sir Lord General Bunker oh, Hill. Yeah. Nice. So. so he gets an honorary doctor. He does, yeah, he gets it. Well, he's an honorary Esquire right well, now, so that's, why not? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> why not give him a PhD? as well yeah he is yeah um, he's got it all some of you who have been on the facebook site for for months will remember stephanie when we were at the black hoof in, in leesburg and we did a live stream there and and uh we had a good time talking about 18th century stuff and i figured what the heck let's do it for a podcast do it again yeah so uh what what are we going to talk about we're going to talk about loyalists again traitors Traitors. Yeah, we're going to talk about loyalists. Okay. Yeah, my favorite thing in the whole world, the crazy loyalist girl. Yeah, that, my enthusiasm for loyalism is sometimes frightening, but <laughs> yeah. it's pretty great. So so tell everyone again, remind everyone again about your background. Okay, so um, right now I'm a PhD candidate at George Mason University, um, where I am studying loyalism in Virginia during the Revolutionary War. Um, a reason why that is of some interest to me is because um, the historiography on loyalism is really starting to gain momentum. Um, a lot more people are interested. I mean, we can talk about why, I guess. I'm still not quite sure why it's becoming more popular, um, but it is, fortunately. And um, I specifically study Virginia because that's an area of the revolution that has been studied so much, um, and yet the one topic no one talks about is loyalism. And right. yeah, so, and it's a lot more interesting than people give it credit for. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's like you think of Virginia and 
in the revolution, everyone thinks it was just George Washington. Yep, George Washington, Mount Vernon, <laughs> Mount Vernon um, right. Thomas Jefferson, Monticello. Right. Or my yeah. favorite is um, if there's any 1776 the musical fans out there, um, Richard Henry Lee coming in and singing the Lees of Old Virginia, kind of, yeah. Yeah. Rah, rah, Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> I, haven't seen that. I haven't seen that oh, in years. Oh, gosh, it's the best. It's yeah. the absolute best. Yeah. Now, see, I'm a, I'm a John Adams guy because of the miniseries. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me into thinking about the revolution more yeah uh, what what was your kind of thing that got you started well that's so funny because it's john adams 100 oh, yeah. percent. yeah and john adams i always say he's my history boyfriend um <laughs> so he would be absolutely mortified that i study loyalists probably but um no so growing up in Mississippi. For some reason, I was never really interested in American history. Um, my mother loved um, medieval history, Renaissance history, early modern European history. And I kind of grew up in a household where, you know, um, everyone remembers the Tudors from Showtime. I sat with my I met, I know it's terribly historically inaccurate, but a great show. Um, I watched right. the Tudors with her constantly when I was like in high school and undergraduate. And I was always fascinated with that time period because of her. And when I decided decided I wanted to get a master's. Um, I wanted to study either the 12th century Renaissance, so really medieval, wow. yeah. or I wanted to do something early modern, um, something to do with England, I'm sure. And that drove my dad bonkers. Like he was not having it. And, um, he'd ask me all the time, why don't you want to study medieval history? And I'd give him this really cool answer about where's the Kings and the castles. And it's just not happening. Like it's not going to happen. And one Christmas he bought, I think it was two years after the miniseries came out, he bought me the John Adams miniseries. And after one episode, I was hooked. I was buying John Adams as my homeboy (laughs) t-shirts and rocking it around the history department. Yeah. You remember those? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I had those. I had John Adams bobbleheads and my entire life was changed and here I am studying the American Revolution. Yeah, yeah and Paul Giamatti's always gonna be John Adams to me. <sighs> he will. It's like it's like George C. Scott with Patton. Yeah. Paul Giamatti is is John Adams. He will because I love William Daniels and Mr. Feeney who Mm -hmm. plays John Adams in 1776 the musical and he does a fantastic job and he will always kind of be John Adams to me but not always Paul Giamatti is yeah he is when I envision John Adams that's it. Yeah thank you popular (laughs) culture for making that right good for us. Thank you yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's just such a and Laura Linney is Abigail oh yeah the perfect Abigail and so right I believe they won golden globes for that i think they earned think. every ounce of it yeah they deserved every accolade they could possibly get yeah. and again it's a it's a a mini series that people like us you know mm-hmm. we, we watch it and we get influenced by it where we want to learn more about it like hbo did you know band of brothers and people yeah. want to know more about that and all that so popular culture has so much influence on not only yeah, non-historians, but historians as well, because oh yeah, we were already fascinated with history, but we saw that and we're like, wow, I want to know more about this. And to just, and I mean, I wasn't flippantly like a um, just loving medieval history. I mean, I was obsessed. I was ready to mm. study the 12th century. Um, I had done conference papers already on the Empress Matilda. I was incredibly obsessed with the time period, and to have something in popular culture rock your world that hard to completely right. change your mind on what you're going to do for the rest of your life i mean that's pretty that's that's heavy that's, that's a lot yeah it's yeah. really significant yeah so. and and you took that and ran with it with the loyalist end of it 
Yes. Pretty cool. I did. Yeah. And people ask me all the time how I ended up. um, So how did a young woman at that point come from Mississippi (laughs) to study? She was going to study the revolution in Virginia and not just in Virginia, but loyalist. Um, And it's actually really funny. So after my John Adams obsession, um, my family decided when I was a senior in undergrad, they said, okay, let's go on some kind of vacation because I was surrounded by civil war sites. We didn't have any revolutionary sites. Right. And they said, let's go on a vacation and go somewhere. Well, the closest affordable place that we could make it from Mississippi was colonial Williamsburg. Um, and within two seconds of walking down the Duke of Gloucester street, not only did I go from in a complete obsession with John Adams, but now I was 100% obsessed with colonial Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. And I know, and that's one of the things that people consider when you decide if you're going to get the master's, if you can get the PhD, you're going to spend a ton of your time in archives around the places where what you study happened. Right. And I fell in love with Virginia. And so I knew when I came back for the master's, I didn't know what I wanted to study um, in Virginia, but I knew I wanted to spend my time there doing research and being able to go back to Williamsburg. I'm going to Mount Vernon, all sorts of different places like that. And so that's how I ended up in Virginia. And so I told my advisor, I think it was the first meeting we had, his name was Dr. Kyle Zellner, and he was at, he's at the University of Southern Mississippi. And I went to his office and I said, I want to study Virginia during the revolution. And he just laughed and he's like, well, good, it's been done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. get in line yeah. <laughs> behind yeah. like 30 people, yeah. uh, 30,000 people more so like it. And he's like, well, what you need to find is your niche, like what has not mm-hmm. been done. And he was the first person to say it's all, he was like, it's always kind of driven me crazy that no one looks at loyalists in mm. Virginia so it's mm. kind of a haphazard way of jumping into a topic but as you can probably tell from my answer about John Adams and Colonial Williamsburg I have the tendency to jump head first and get obsessed pretty quickly um so that's well I ended up in loyalism in the region that's awesome that's why you and I get along because when we find something we just go full bore and do just it tr- you know Chew it till there's no flavor left and then stick it in your hair. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly yeah. what I do. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Uh, but that story is so underappreciated because, you know, we always we think of the revolution also. and We think of like July 4th and, and, mm-hmm. and all that. And then we lose sight of the history and the background of it. But we don't think about, well, what happens if you were more conservative leaning and you were saying, mm-hmm. I don't want to be involved in this this crap that's going on yeah. out here. Now this, my way of life is going to be gone. Is that what... Uh, is that what kind of interest you too, where it was like, hey, the, these people, it wasn't just black and white, let's say, where mm-hmm. it's like you're either a patriot or you're not. There was all kinds of. Yeah. Image. And I've always leaned very heavily towards social history. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the personal stories. If I'm going to go through mountains of historical documents, I want the personal stuff. I want the letters. I want the diaries. I want to know what people were feeling. Um, initially, when I was going to do the dissertation, I was going to do a complete dissertation just on the Queens Rangers, who were um, a partially Virginia um, loyalist regiment during the Revolution. But unfortunately, I couldn't get my hands on. Those documents just don't exist um for a lot of the folks there are some who are in the queen's rangers that i use in my dissertation but i couldn't get it so 
when I'm sitting there going through these different document collections of loyalists um, to get that personal story out of the revolution, it's something that just affects you. Um, and it really does completely change the way that you think about the 18th century and also about your own era today. I sometimes think when you're a social historian, you're a lot easier on people because you realize how complex, mm -hmm. um, you know, situations are. It's never black and white. Right. And the first collection that I got my hands on was called the Loyalist Claims Commission. And so after the revolution, the British government basically says, okay, yeah, um, we lost and we kind of screwed you guys over. So you're being ostracized in your community. A lot of you were exiled to different places throughout the empire. Um, what can we do to make your life better? And that's kind of the rosy side of it. They do kind of screw over a lot of my loyalists. Um, but loyalists have the opportunity to write basically an affidavit saying, this is who I am. This is where I was from. Um, this is how much property I lost. These are the different ways in which I showed loyalism. And here's a bunch of witnesses who can confirm that, you know, this is what happened. And so you're going through these letters and a lot of the, um, a lot of the documents that I went through were from women. And I have one loyalist who her husband is killed um, early on in a battle and she was pregnant when her husband was killed and her child was born um, deaf and blind. And she's convinced that it was um, the reason why her child was born that way was because of the stress that she suffered mm -hmm. um, from his death and from the war in general. She talks about how she had trash thrown out her thrown at her when she was walking down the street. I mean, and so you get these really heart wrenching you know, looks of what happened to you if you're a loyalist. Um, but also there's people who will tell you why they were loyalist. And the majority will say, I was a merchant in Norfolk. Um, all of my business and trade came from Great Britain. My livelihood was in Britain. And, you know, if I were not to support that side during the war, and we they completely expected Britain to win. They're like, I would lose everything. I my children wouldn't be fed. Um, I you know, we would have no home. We don't know what would have happened to us. And the sad part is that is what actually ends up happening to them because the Patriots won the war. But you really get these heart wrenching stories of how, you know, the political atmosphere really affected these people and, you know, for the rest of their lives and, you know, on to their descendants. Yeah, it, when we were doing the live stream before, I remember saying that uh, I considered uh, the the revolution to be our first civil war, mm -hmm. and it kind of went into that social aspect. I think when we were talking about it, where it was like, how do these people actually see, you know, themselves in their neighborhoods? How do they see that change? And apparently, with mm -hmm. with a woman getting trash thrown at her yeah. and, and people experiencing that from their neighbors, it must have been just a gut wrenching thing to be going through and especially with losing yeah. you know a husband yeah right and there. and they lose a lot and like one of the saddest stories um, i actually presented um last march at the um conference on the american revolution which is sponsored by american history llc um they have a conference every year in williamsburg and i did a presentation on split families hmm. because that's one of the things very few people look at um, is the aspect of, well, what happens when one of your sons is a patriot and the other one is a loyalist? Like, how do you reconcile that? And right. there's a very wealthy plantation owner um, in the Virginia Tidewater called William Byrd III. And 
he um, fought in the French and Indian War. He was very well respected in the area. And he was seen from the very beginning as a staunch Tory. Well, he's got one son who um, starts out in the British Navy and is begging his father, like, hey, can I please get out of the British Navy? I hate this. Um, and William Byrd's writing him and saying, um, absolutely not. I bought you that commission. <laughs> You're saying, young man. Yeah. And the other son, Thomas Taylor Bird, um, is a loyalist. He becomes an officer in Lord Dunmore's Royal Ethiopian Regiment. So he's kind of like the prize son. Well, around 1775, early 1776, William Byrd kind of has this change of mind and he starts deciding, wait a second, um, maybe I am a patriot and not necessarily a loyalist. Well, at that point in time, um, his son, who was in the British Navy, actually goes against his dad's wishes, becomes an aide-de-camp, I can't remember to who, in the Continental Army, um, and flips sides and becomes a patriot. Now William Byrd wants to be a patriot too, but his name has already just been so tarnished in the community. Um, he can't reconcile with the community. Um, the community only really recognizes that one of his sons is with Lord Dunmore, who by that point is the most vilified person um, in the southern colonies. And he had a lot of debt from gambling and in 1776 he commits suicide he shoots himself in his own home at Westover wow. Plantation and that's kind of a huge you know, I mean suicide in the 18th century is probably one of the most damnable things that you could possibly do mm. and he I mean, that's basically how the revolution affected people when you had split families or you were so ideologically torn over what side you wanted to go mm -hmm. towards and you know he's not um he's not the only person throughout the war who does that in the Virginia and for the Virginia Tidewater. So it's an interesting situation. That would be. And, and as you've gone through these records, like when you first started out, did you have a different mindset about the loyalists? Uh, did your mindset change really when you started to see the human cost of it? Yeah. Well, because to be honest, when I first started out, um, I was more so interested in having a topic and, I wanted to study Virginia and I was not excited. wasn't particularly jazzed about studying loyalists. And then when I started opening those primary collections and I started seeing these heart wrenching stories um, or just, you know, struggles. I mean, I have women, elderly women who um, escaped Williamsburg in the middle of the night, like had to be, you know, put undercover so they could leave because they were scared something was going to happen to them. Um, it really affected me, you know, as a social historian, you get to you you sympathize with them on another level because you almost feel like you get to know them through studying something that's so personal and right. I mean very raw and very open because right. yes on one hand they're trying to get compensated by the British government so you never know how big of a violin story this is um but a lot of times you'll have friends and family who will confirm yes this is the story yes I know this person had to do this and there's one person in particular who I always talk about um his name is John Randolph, and he is brothers with Peyton Randolph, who is the president of the First Continental Congress. Um, and his son Edmund Randolph is aide de camp to George Washington, and he is called John the Tory Randolph in the Williamsburg <laughs> wow. area. Um, and his one of his closest friends at the time is his cousin Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> and he and Jefferson have this like back and forth kind of humor with each other. Um, they were 
the lawyers on each other's wills um, in the early 1770s. That's cool. And there was like this kind of joke between the two of them that if Jefferson were to die first, that um, Randolph would get um, half of Jefferson's library. (laughs) But if Randolph were to go first... um, Jefferson would get his prized violin that Jefferson there's actually letters where he talks about how much he loves Randolph's violin. Well, in 1776, John Randolph has to escape Williamsburg. Um, He leaves Taswell Hall and um, heads for England. Well, when Jefferson finds out that he's left, he actually sends a party to Randolph's house to try to save as much as he can before Patriots find out and kind of trash the place. And he writes John Randolph and he's like, ha ha, I got your violin. (laughs) Um, So I know I have your violin. But the saddest part about that is... um, John's never able to reconcile with Peyton Randolph. Um, Peyton dies and is never never even makes it to the Second Continental Congress. He never reconciles with his son. And you can tell that bothers him. And in 1779, Thomas Jefferson is made governor of Virginia. And you can, it's really pitiful because John Randolph writes Jefferson this really long letter where he says, Basically, he almost defends himself and explains once again why he's a loyalist. Um, his wife and daughters had trash thrown at them during, on the Duke of Gloucester Street. And he talks about how that's affected his wife and it's affected his children and how people he used to call his best friends now hate him. And he's living in poverty pretty much in England and just how this has affected him. But he defends himself. And it's really sad because he sends the letter to Jefferson knowing that the two are never going to get to talk again because he's now Jefferson's now governor of Virginia um and it's debated whether or not we know that letter was in Jefferson's collection but we're not sure he ever opened the letter um because it was kind of the ending of that relationship and Jefferson was the last person who would really talk to him via letter like his own family wouldn't even talk to him so you kind of see how these families and these people and their relationships are destroyed over something that The more people I talk to, they'll say, I bet you I would have been a loyalist (laughs) during the war. Like that actually made more sense to be a loyalist versus a patriot. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's definitely not a black and white situation. Yeah. History never is. No, it never is. And people want to paint it that so hard. And it's just not. Right. Yeah. There's so many layers to it. And Mm -hmm. there's so many ways to look at it. And uh with what you're doing through the personal stories, you know, it, it really brings it more home because you get to have a sense of would I have done that or would I have mm-hmm. gone a separate route, not just being a loyalist, but would I have made that commitment to, to maintain that, you know, that, that air of being a loyalist or would I yeah. have broken halfway through and been like, well, maybe, maybe yeah. I'm going to be a patriot. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, and that's kind of why. Like my poor advisor, she keeps asking me like where my chapters are. And that's kind of the problem um, that has turned into this kind of the most difficult aspect of my relationship is, you know, um, I feel very different politically than I did what seven years ago or something like that people change their minds constantly Mm -hmm. throughout their lives um especially if you're living during a time period of conflict and so one of the things that i have in my research is this massive database of every identifiable loyalist that i've been able to find via the virginia gazettes loyalist claims records prisoner records anything in my hands on and the problem is how do you deal with this very human ability to change 
change your mind. So when I'm trying to quantify something like, oh, I have 4,000 loyalists, look, here they are. Um, But how do you account for the people who changed their mind at Yorktown? Or how do you account for the people who were patriots up until 1781 when Cornwallis came through and all of a sudden they're loyalists? Um, So it's, you know, it's something that haunts me at night (laughs) at two o'clock in the morning. I'm trying to figure this out. Um, But yeah, you can't you just can't paint it that easily. Right. Yeah. People's Mm -hmm. minds change all the time. And I think, you know, uh, people people change their minds a lot especially in the history field mm-hmm. you know because we learn new data and we're like oh, okay we didn't think yeah. it was that way and it's kind of easier for us as historians to be like okay i i believe that now because here's hard evidence yeah in front of us you know that this happened or, or whatever uh what about some has it uh kindled some new friendships with you where like it's taking you in a new direction and you're working with other people who are also historians of loyalists that you kind of connected with over the years oh my goodness yes it turns out that um there's like loyalist fan clubs all over the place. Um, Travis Shaw, who I know you're going to be talking to, right. um, he's one of my best friends in the field. And we actually met because he was studying the Queen's Rangers at the same time. I thought I was going to be studying the Queen's Rangers. And that was kind of an interesting um, situation where we both kind of jumped in. And we play off each other's research all of the time. And, you know, one the reenacting community for loyalism is huge. Um, and, in fact, they've been kind of like my invigorating source space for um I'm trying right now to create an online website where you can go on and transcribe the loyalist claims records um for Virginia or and you know get as much information that you can get out of that and it's my reenacting communities are the ones who actually want to sit back and transcribe those documents which they're insanely long um so that's a great group um another group that I've had the opportunity to work with that I just can't say like more wonderful things about them is the United Empire Loyalist Association of Canada Mm -hmm. um they're a genealogical society out of Canada because after the war if you were an exiled loyalist there was a really good chance you were going to end up in New Brunswick or Nova Scotia and so they're a genealogical loyalist organization and they're absolutely fantastic and um I think of them they've kind of changed the way that I think about loyalists and that the name of my master's thesis was called Victims of Liberty because I wanted to do a play on the term enemies of liberty. But of course, as you know, you've heard me talk about in the last few minutes, you know, it's the sad stories I've talked about, right? Like, cause they're the ones that hit you the most. Right. Well, that's not how it's seen in New Brunswick or Nova Scotia at all. Um, loyalists are heroes and they actually, quite a few Virginians make it. Um, John Saunders, he lived in Princess Anne County, Virginia. He was an elite Virginian, moves to New Brunswick and creates quite a name for himself as a very influential judge. I mean, they have a monument to him in Fredericton where he, um, where he's buried just this massive burial. And so, um, I try very hard in respect to them not to always tell the sad stories, but to tell the inspirational ones too, because they do go on to do good things. And they, 
um, people from that organization do not like when you talk about loyalists as victims because they don't mm-hmm. see them as victims at all. They see the revolution as, you know, sometimes a good thing um, that happened to many of these people. And so they've had a huge influence on how, you know, the Canadian side of the story has really transformed the way that I look at these different social stories. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, I never thought of that because I know that uh, I have several friends who live in Upper Canada, mm-hmm. as it was called, and I still call it that, uh, around Toronto and, and Hamilton, and they're members of that society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they do a lot up there with that. Kind of like, you know, you could be a member of the Sons of the Revolution or Daughters of the Revolution. Yeah. That's that equivalent of that up there, and they're members of that, and they, they're really hardcore into that. You oh, know? they really are, and they gave me, and I have to say, you know, just as, you know, they did, they gave me a very nice scholarship um, when I was studying, mm-hmm. um, so in fact, like, that scholarship just ended, but you want to talk about a group of people who are so absolutely incredible, incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, they love when people want to study the history of their ancestors. Um, I have had members of the UELAC send me emails and say, hey, this family member was a Virginian. We have not donated our letters to an archive yet. We have them. Do you want dibs? And I'm like, wow. yes. Yes, I will <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes, yes, I do. I, I do. Um, yes, please. I would like that. Yeah. Um, so they are wonderful. I even had, we had a um, wonderful experience when we went to go. I went to go study at the University of New Brunswick like two Thanksgivings ago and some of the descendants found out that I was coming in the area. They took my husband and I out to um, one of the local bars in the area, wanted to hear everything I had to say on the topic and then gave us tickets to the largest whiskey festival in um, Canada. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yeah, these are great people. (laughs) I love you guys. So I'm in a, I, just absolutely love working with them so that's awesome. they're fantastic that's mm-hmm. awesome mm-hmm. what's uh what's one thing you're taking away from this whole experience that has changed you oh my gosh um and I guess I've always kind of felt this way about things but never even if there is someone that you think think believe something completely different from you sometimes there is a reasonable reason for it um to on when you're looking at someone who's on the opposite side of a political spectrum not to necessarily automatically vilify them because sometimes they do have absolutely reasonable personal reasons for why they may choose a side um and I guess just to be a lot more empathetic understanding and not jump to the black and white conclusion. Because when I first started on this project, I mean, I'm not so sure I did start out on this project with a positive outlook on loyalism. I don't know if the story was going to be positive. And I will say right now, um, it is kind of positive for my loyalists. Like they kind of win, like in my dissertation when it comes, you know, the social side of the story. And that's not how it started out. Like Mm -hmm. to me, I was team Patriot and I know, haha, like all the academics are looking at me saying, you're not supposed to choose a side. Um, and I'm not choosing a side, (laughs) but you know, when you're looking through these different sources and coming to conclusions, I mean, there's a very, there's a lot bigger sympathetic outlook for them right yeah and when our education system educational system pounds it in our heads you know that the the loyalists were just traitors don't worry about them you know Mm -hmm. they're you won't we won't hardly even talk about them really but no uh we just talk about the british versus the patriots and it's like well okay we were all british until you know before that and uh but yeah it's 
it's a partially a failure on the educational system in that regard, where we don't think about the loyalists as people. We think about them as enemies. enemies. Yeah, the traitors. Yeah, and they're not they're worse than enemies. And right. so that's the thing is like, you know, the British are the enemy. The loyalists are traitors, which right. is a com- that's a whole other level of stink um, yeah. Yeah. that you put they're them below. into. Yeah, yeah, they're below the enemy. They're even worse because right. um, right. at least the, the British, and I'm doing my air quotes, are respectable. <laughs> um, and the loyalists are not because they're just the worst. Um, and I totally, yeah, agree with that. But I will say what a fascinating time to be studying alternate, not alternate histories, but, um, the history of the other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who normally don't get the limelight when it comes to historical topics, because I always say it's, you know, I'm perfectly happy being a millennial because I feel like I'm living in the correct time period. Mm -hmm. Um, because historic sites are now having to offer, you know, these other stories for the revolution. People don't want the grand narrative anymore because it's too simplistic. Anytime a historical story seems too good to be true or too simplistic it is um there's always something more complicated going on so i've gotten a lot of questions from historic sites about how to talk about loyalists um because you know the younger generations are coming in and that those are the stories they want they want to hear the story that they didn't get in their seventh grade history class Um, they want the more complex story and so it's interesting to watch these different historic sites in my area virginia kind of handle the new questions on loyalism and putting like you know new interpreters as loyalists in different historic sites and Mm -hmm. it's it's awesome it's a lot of fun it's it's like i've said before that I think the internet and the social media and everything, social media and the internet has leveled the playing field yeah. in the history world as far as what educational level you are. Mm-hmm. I think it's really helped to level that. But I think it's also leveled the field as in we don't have to worry about, or not worry, but we don't have to strictly study the generals in command. We can talk yeah. about the lowest person on the wrong, or we can talk about the social issues mm-hmm. even more so than we did in the seventies and eighties when that was huge. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I always think it's really funny. So, um, there was one wave of loyalist studies and it was in the 1960s in the historiography. Mm-hmm. And it was, you could tell it was that group getting ready for the bicentennial. Right. Um, and Robert Calhoun was one of the, um, biggest historians who studied loyalists at the point and Mary Beth Norton, who is one of my favorite historians of all time. Um, she actually, her dissertation and first book was called, well, the first book was called the British Americans. And she was looking at what happened to loyalists after the war. And so you had this really interesting time period of folks who were, um, getting jazzed to talk about loyalism and then the bicentennial kind of happened and i mean smashed it in the face and i mean any reference to loyalists they were traitors they were the worst um there was there's a quote by leslie fs upton who wrote a book on loyalism that says that um loyalists are always relegated to an uncomplimentary sentence or two like that's Mm -hmm. all they get Mm -hmm. and then you completely bypass them and keep going so it was so sad because you had this one time where it looked like we were going to talk to them and then in the 1980s you have a few historians who decide they're going to talk and it really takes until like 2000 I think it was 2002 is when Judith Van Buskirk wrote a book called Generous Enemies about loyalists in um, New York Mm -hmm. 
And right after she wrote that book, all of a sudden, and I think it's cool because if you look at the time, it's post 9-11. We're starting to get in a little bit more complex discussions about things in general. And loyalists kind of take a huge upswing in the historiography. So Mm. now they're all over the place. There's publications (laughs) every 20 seconds on loyalists, and I'm very happy about it. That's awesome. It's a good time to be alive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a great time to be in the field, right? Um, Who's one person that really intrigued you that was like someone that, the regular, you know, person on the street would hear about. I know we've, I know we've kind of like fangirled over Tarleton before. I love uh, Bannister Tarleton. <laughs> yeah. He's the love hate one though, because yeah. I do not agree with anything Bannister Tarleton ever did or said. But right. it's like watching a train wreck; you just can't look yeah, away. Exactly. Yeah, in a fascinating way. So I exactly. love Bannister Tarleton. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he would have had a reality show back in the day. Oh my god, he had like been great. Terrible one too. So yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, I love him. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Most of them are terrible, but yeah, yeah he would have been a terrible one but yeah yeah he was an interesting character but uh wasn't it ben franklin's son was a loyalist wasn't he? william franklin he sure was yeah yeah and he became governor of pennsylvania for a hot second there before they <laughs> threw him in jail and all that jazz yeah and i actually don't know much about william franklin um other than that he was a loyalist i do know he writes witness testimonies um for quite a few of my loyalists in virginia and i'm trying to figure oh, out wow. exactly yeah one of them um oh my goodness what is his name? I hate myself so much right now. <laughs> no. You've been name dropping that. I know. I so. know. See, I'm not crazy. Oh, William Hunter Jr. And I know this because nerd alert. We're in my home right now and I'm staring across and I have framed um, copies of the Virginia Gazette newspapers on my back wall because <laughs> that's who we are as people, right, John? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, William Hunter Jr. Um, so he is inherits part of the Virginia Gazette newspapers and he's an editor. And throughout the entire war, there's kind of this question as to whether or not he's a loyalist. Um, and it kind of gets dropped. Well, in 1781, guess who's running to Cornwallis in the Southern Campaign? Well, there's oh. William Hunter Jr. So he's one of those who kept quiet kind of the whole time and then at the very end um makes his great escape to Cornwallis and he was a printer I mean he was a printer his father was a printer and that's how he knew William Franklin was Mm -hmm. through Benjamin Franklin also being a printer so they kind of existed in this weird little network community and William Franklin actually writes him a loyalist uh, a witness testimony for his loyalist claim which I think is really interesting that's cool yeah that's cool so how far are you along in the dissertation? Oh, dear Lord. Isn't that I gotta the question? Ask that question. You got to ask that question. Um, <laughs> my problem is, and if my advisor is listening right now, so um, <laughs> I am a couple of drafts in right now. Um, we'll share this with your advisor. I know with my advisor. I need, I know I need to send this to her. She's a <laughs> wonderful woman, Dr. Cynthia Kerner. She's fantastic. Um, well, anyway, my biggest issue is I can't stop researching. Um, one of the reasons people have kind of neglected to study loyalism is there's kind of this false narrative that the documents just don't exist. Oh, they exist. All right. Um, they just exist in a million different places and you just have to go get them. And I feel like every time I go to write, um, something has just been dropped on me like a bomb, um, of some new, like for instance, I know, I'm sorry. I have no problem talking. If anybody needs a talker to fill up space, um, I'll be there for you. I just talk. Um, so for instance, I start my, 
dissertation in 1765, not necessarily because that's the Stamp Act, but because that's the year that Thomas, no, Thomas Jefferson and a few other patriots in Virginia, not patriots yet, um, bring the second printing press to Virginia. There was only one Virginia Gazette newspaper. It was heavy on the royalist side and um, a group of people who will become patriots bring in a second newspaper to kind of be the competitor. Mm-hmm. Um and to kind of show maybe less leaning of a royalist side, it's Rhine's Virginia Gazette. Well, um, I was going to write this, you know, about how in the very beginning, starting with the Stamp Act, even though you don't have loyalists and patriots or Tories and Whigs yet, um, people are starting to share different sides of how they feel about these varying acts. And it's civil. And then as I started doing research, I found there's this epidemic in Norfolk in 1768 and 69 um, with smallpox inoculations. So Virginia, believe it or not, was relatively unscathed during the 18th century when it came to smallpox epidemics. You see it in Massachusetts a lot. You see it in other areas of the world a lot. And somehow Virginia has managed to do pretty well. Well, at the end of the 1760s, smallpox starts hitting the region, and you have almost this early anti-vaxxer movement in Virginia, where people get really freaked out about inoculation. And I mean, if you think about it, you're literally putting someone's pus into your body, (laughs) which I could see how you would raise your eyebrow at that. Um, But there's a group of merchants in Norfolk, and they are Scottish merchants, and they have a doctor come over to inoculate them and their families. Well, the anti-vaxxers or anti-inoculators in Norfolk find out about this. I mean, they drag the families out in the middle of the night. They kind of destroy the homes. Um, Eventually, um, Dr. Archibald Campbell and James Parker are part of this group. Um, They're burned and hanged in effigy because of this. And it becomes this whole ordeal. Well, interestingly enough, um, Dr. Archibald Campbell and one of the leaders of the Patriot Movement eventually in Virginia, um, they'd been having arguments with with each other like during the stamp act in 1765 so they'd been kind of arguing with each other for a while and james parker um writes a letter to one of his friends and says that he thinks that this anti-inoculation thing has nothing to do with smallpox it has to do with this beef these two have about the um about the stamp act Mm. so they're trying to use this as a reason to attack each other and hate each other and the funny part is by the time the revolution officially you know comes out and there is a war um the anti-inoculation side is your patriot group and your inoculation (laughs) side is your loyalist group so there's so i was like almost done with this chapter and i find this very interesting piece of Virginia history that no one talks about. I talked to some Virginia historians about it and they're like, what do you mean there's an anti-inoculation riot in Norfolk? I'm like, yeah, right? Like who knew? Um, Completely changed the narrative and I had to start all over. And it happens constantly. Um, (laughs) So I have to that old saying the done dissertation is a good dissertation i like relate to that on a spiritual level now like at some <laughs> point i'm gonna have to just say stop it stop accepting emails don't check your email anymore right. if someone has this new source you've never heard of just write the damn thing so right. just go for it yeah right know when yeah. to say when know when to say and i don't and i'm the worst <laughs> at it so oh god yeah yeah i can't wait to read it Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I'm had to, I've had, I'm just having to get it done. Get it done. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, you'll get it done. Mm-hmm. But speaking of done, 
I Are think, we done? I think our episode is wrapping up. Oh, Lord. Did I talk that long? <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, I, I, I appreciate your time yeah. doing this. Uh, we, we love uh, working together because I can pull Stephanie's string and she can just go. And yeah. we can rock and roll in some history. <laughs> I do love history. Yeah. You love history. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone does this to themselves. No, exactly. They love history. Yeah. Exactly. Ah. But no, thank you for, for doing this. Uh, and I hope it wasn't too painful. No, it wasn't bad at all. Bunker was good. He was a very good contributor. So, yeah. yeah. He laid here and, and kept us company. Yeah, he did so, good. Yeah, I'm he proud. did very good. Mm-hmm. So thank you all for uh, tuning in and listening. And uh, I'm be sure to pass this on to your advisor. Oh, please, please do. I will. Love you, Dr. Kerner. I will. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>